Misha here. If you enjoy our episodes on career pathways in healthcare or the STEM field at large, then I have the perfect podcast recommendation for you, Raising Health. Previously called BioEats World, Raising Health comes from leading venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz, the same team behind the acclaimed A16Z podcast. Each episode, Raising Health dives deep into the heart of healthcare, biotech, and AI with venture capital investors and A16Z general partners. Along the way, they explore the real challenges and opportunities in health and biotech entrepreneurship. So whether you're interested in building a new digital healthcare company or your company is advancing a new novel medicine, Raising Health sheds light on some of the opportunities and obstacles along the founder's journey. Not to mention, you'll hear raw insights, actionable advice from notable guests like Omada CEO and co-founder Sean Duffy, an AI expert and in situ CEO Daphne Kohler. Don't miss out. Follow Raising Health on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and tell them I sent you. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they I felt, felt right. I was so and I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey guys, welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. I'm Erin Barker, Artistic Director of the Story Collider, filling in for Ben Lilly this week. So this week we're bringing you two stories about scientists exploring new challenges, from managing unruly chimpanzees to swimming in the open water. Our first story this week is from Jeff Braden. It was recorded in April 2017 at the Red Room in Kenston, North Carolina. This show is produced in partnership with the NC State Leadership and Public Science Cluster, with support from the Burroughs Welcome Fund, the NC Science Festival, the NC State College of Sciences, and the NC State College of Humanities and Social Sciences. The theme that night was New Frontiers. So in spring of 1977, I was a student teacher, and I had just sent my first and second graders out of the classroom to go get on those yellow buses, when over the intercom at Mabel C. O'Donnell Elementary School, I hear, Mr. Braden, Mr. Braden, you have a long-distance phone call. Now, for those of you who have always dialed 10 digits, you have no idea how big this was. Back in 1977, it was a big deal to call a number outside of your area code, much less across state lines. So here I am, this little student teacher, and I'm like walking down the hallway, and everybody's going, ooh, oh, long distance phone call, all right. And the the secretary hands me the phone, she said, it's long distance. And I said, hi, this is Jeff Braden. And I heard on the other end of the line, hello, this is Alan Gardner from the Psychobiology of Language Project at the University of Nevada, Reno. And I want to offer you a full scholarship and admission into our PhD program in experimental psych. And that struck me as odd for really three reasons. Okay, so first, 
1977, Alan Gardner was one of the most well-known scientists on the planet. Alan and his wife Trixie had raised a chimpanzee named Washo, and she was the first non-human primate to acquire a human language naturally. In fact, Alan and Trixie were in the middle of a struggle with a linguist named Noam Chomsky. And Professor Chomsky said chimpanzees use language the same way a chicken can fly. In other words, he was disparaging. Noam Chomsky's position was only humans could acquire language. And the gardeners said, well, we have this research to show otherwise. And the media was full of these images of you know chimpanzees walking with Alan and Trixie across this grass and announcers gushing, now we can talk to the animals and you know all this kind of stuff. So I thought it was pretty unlikely that one of the most famous scientists on the planet would be calling me. There was a second reason why I thought it was unlikely. I had never applied to the University of Nevada, Reno. I had never contacted them. I hadn't even looked at graduate school. My game plan was to get married that summer and start my career as an elementary school teacher in rural Wisconsin. So I thought it was pretty unusual to have a world famous scientist call me out of the blue, I've never talked to him, never contacted him, and offer me a full ride to get my PhD. But the third reason that really convinced me it wasn't Alan Gardner was that voice. I mean, really? You know, we didn't have a word for it back then, but I was convinced that one of my friends was punking me. Because <laughs> that's the kind of friends I have. So I said what I think only any logical person would say, and I said, yeah, who the fuck is this really? <laughs> and there was a pause, and then I heard, this is Alan Gardner from the Psychobiology and Language Project at the University of Nevada, and I'm like, no. Well, you probably can guess I wouldn't be standing here today if it wasn't Alan Gardner from the University of Nevada, Reno, offering me a full ride to get my PhD in experimental psych. And how he got to me is kind of an interesting question, which I will say I will get to directly, which in the South means I'll get there eventually. So, but within two months, my wife Jill and I had filled up every possession we had, stuffed it into a two-door Dodge Colt, and we were driving across country to Reno, Nevada. Now, I don't know how many of you have actually met a chimpanzee face-to-face. -face. I have. Um, I've also met a lowland gorilla, but it, it's pretty interesting. It's kind of freaky, actually. Um, and I started at the Psychobiology Language Project uh, with a chimpanzee named Moja. She was a four-year-old female. She was about 95 pounds, had arms about as long as my legs. And I can show you the exact size of her mouth. It's this moon-shaped scar that I carry right here. Um, and the whole point of Alan and Trixie's research was to raise Moja and two other chimps, Dar and Tatu, in a language-rich environment, which pretty much was middle-class children's existence. So they had their own jackets, they had bathrobes, you know, and all this other stuff. And the idea was you tried to make every possible event 
a language-mediated event. And sure enough, they signed. They said things like, uh, play chase. Uh, they said things like, want, eat, uh, run, all bird, all kinds of things. And we worked with them, but as Noam Chomsky frequently pointed out, their signing tended to be pretty concrete, naming things, action, eating, going to the bathroom, whatever it might be. And so a couple of us decided, you know, we really need to expand this. We really need to try and help Moja develop more abstract language. And we thought it would be useful to teach her how to express annoyance at someone else's actions. And so every time she did something that annoyed us, like she ripped the toilet off its moorings and we had water spraying everywhere, you know, she'd, she'd do things, bite me, you know, other kinds of things. We'd go like this, which is to express annoyance at another person's actions. And for the people who might be listening to this, I just extended my middle finger. And so we, we worked a lot with her and we, we did this. Well, a couple of you know, weeks after we started this, Alan had Dar and one of my other colleagues had Tatu and I had Moshe and we took them outside when they were playing and running around. And the downside of raising chimpanzees like children is if they want to run away, you can't catch them. <laughs> They'll go right up on a roof and forget about it. And so Moshe decided she was going to take off and she went up on the big roof of the big house. And there's something really paradoxical about chimpanzees. To get them to come back to you, you scare them. When they are frightened, they seek physical contact with the dominant person in the group. And so Moshe took off, Alan looked up, and he goes, okay, and he picks up this rock and he goes, and he throws the rock, whoop, throws the rock, not at Moja, but near Moja, so that the sound would scare her and she would come running back, and Moja went like this. <laughs> now, the other guy and I are falling on the ground laughing. And Alan goes, what did she say? What did she sign? What did she sign? Because a chimpanzee actually doesn't do this. They don't have opposable thumbs. It's more like this, you know? And so we were just dying laughter. Now, this is science. We couldn't count that as the use of a word until it happened a second time in an appropriate context, independent of the first observation. And we never saw it again. So that event never made it into the annals of science. Well, I will tell you, I didn't stay with the project very long. I left after about a year. But that project, in many ways, changed my outlook and changed my life. I learned a couple of things, really, about not just chimpanzees, but about myself. I learned that I could pick up things about as quick, maybe even quicker, than some of the other grad students. I learned that learning about behavior was fascinating. And I learned that I had the disposition to observe dispassionately and try and link the behavior I saw to theories of behavior and motivation. 
And so about eight years later, I got my PhD from the University of California at Berkeley, one of those blue and gold schools. And I went on to a career where I either held tenure or a tenure line position at four different universities. Worked with probably over 100 grad students along the way as a social scientist. So I did tell you that I would get to the point about how Ellen found me. And this is how it happened. I was teaching American Sign Language at my first alma mater, Beloit College, small liberal arts school in Wisconsin. And one of the fellow students in my class had applied to work on the project and listed a professor of psychology as his reference. Now that professor of psychology and I knew each other because Beloit's small community in a very small town, but I never had him for a class. I never did any work with him. But when Alan contacted him, he said, well, the guy you're talking about is really good, but the guy you really ought to be talking about, really ought to be talking to, is Jeff Braden. And Alan tracked me down at this elementary school in Illinois and made that call. That act of unrequested, unbidden kindness and advocacy on my behalf changed my life. So when people ask me, did working with chimpanzees prepare you for a career teaching undergraduate students, I say, yeah. Not really, but it was invaluable preparation for my two terms on faculty senate. Um, what I don't often say is it also taught me that very often the greatest influence that professors have on future scientists is outside the lab and outside the classroom. And I've tried to remember that throughout my career. Thank you. That was Jeff Braden. Jeff Braden is the Dean of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences and Professor of Psychology at NC State University. Prior to becoming Dean, he was a professor and director of school psychology programs at NC State, University of Wisconsin-Madison, San Jose State University, and the University of Florida. Our second story today is from Latasha Wright. It was recorded in October 2016 at Union Hall in Brooklyn, New York. The theme that night was fear. So after four years of college, you got to be S in chemistry. Six years, yeah, I know, it's crazy. Um, six years of graduate school, got a PhD in cell and molecular biology. Okay. Um, three years of postdocing. Yeah, I know. And another two years, because, you know, one postdoc wasn't enough. I needed to do two because I'm an overachiever like that. Um, so after 15 years of 
trying to become a research scientist, I realized that I'm really a science enthusiast. <laughs> Not really. Yeah, I don't have what it takes, you know? Those research scientists, they have to like dig in, like laser, you know, get, this is the point in the, between the point in between the point. And I'm more like that dogging up, you know? Like, <laughs> global warming, what, what, huh? So, photosynthesis, what, yeah, yeah, I wanna do that. Uh, particle physics, I can do that, uh, yeah, I got that. No. Nah, that's not what it was. So I decided to use this great talent of mine and really parlay it into another career. And so I joined the BioBus because it's like science outreach. And when I joined, it was an actual bus and it looked like something out of the Partridge family. It's got all kinds of colors on it and little kids are in there like, hey, the hippies are coming. And I'm like, yeah, that's me, man. And I started wearing tie-dye and, you know, we started, we were all in there and doing science and I was a scientist with the kids and kids are looking up to me and I'm like, yeah, I'm a big deal, you know? And um, so I started that and we've, we were doing it for a long time and then, you know, it was successful. You know, scientists who love science teaching kids. Yeah, that worked. Um, and then we got, you know, we got a, a phone call one day. Okay, stay with me because it gets weird a little bit right now. <laughs> so it's from the U.S. Forest Service. Yeah? And they're like, yeah, so could you guys, like, consult with us and teach us how to do this in other countries with, you know, other NGOs? And we're like, Yo, yeah, go to other countries. I got that, yeah. And so they, you know, this woman's name was Natasha. She's super sweet, um, even shorter than me. Um, <laughs> and then Christina, she's from the Forest Service, so they showed up. And then they brought with them this, one, this man from Egypt. Um, his name was Amr. And I don't know if you've ever met somebody, the first time you meet them, you're like, are you my daddy? Because <laughs> he, he was just such a force of nature, and he was just so passionate and everything, and I was just like, I just want your approval. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, let's not talk about that. Um, <laughs> and so then, after all of this work, um, he was like, yeah, you know, you guys should come to Egypt and, and help us. And so they were getting a bio boat. Yeah, like a yacht, a yacht, guys, a yacht on in Egypt. And I was like, yeah, I can, I can help you, yeah. <laughs> I can do that. So, <laughs> you want me to develop a marine biology curriculum for the Red Sea? I got that, yeah. You know, and I've, because I've always wanted to go to Egypt, right? Um, it was, is when I was little, I used to think about like, oh, I would want to see the pyramids and ride on the camels. And, and you know, I used to watch Charleston Heston parting the Red Sea. <laughs> I'm from Mississippi, guys, sorry. Um, and I was like, I totally am going to go like this when I see the Red Sea and uh, see what happens. I don't know. My part. <laughs> So we get there, and then I get into his office because, you know, I really worked hard. I YouTubed, and I did all that science stuff, and I'm ready. I got my PowerPoint ready to 
tell him how wonderful I am and show him this curriculum. He's like, wait, hold on, hold on. You can't develop a curriculum about coral reefs and the Red Sea without seeing them. And I'm like, ah, oh. but I did. <laughs> and he was like, no, no, no. I, I, I understand what you did, but I want you to see the coral reefs. And I'm like, oh, this is awesome. Yeah, I love boats. Cool. No problem. Yeah, I'm like, this is really cool. So the next day, me, Natasha, Christina, my people from the, my peeps from the Forest Service, we go to the docks and we're getting on a boat. And I realized they have their bathing suits on. And I'm like, wait, this is an underwater thing? <laughs> Hold on. Um, and I'm like, wait. Uh, as you know, as we heard earlier, open water, that's where sharks live. <laughs> so I don't actually go in the ocean. Um, and so I'm getting so nervous because there's a lot of anxiety, right? Because I'm like, what? I have to, you want me to go in the water? Oh, okay. Um, and so we get there and we're on the boat and I'm with my colleagues and Natasha and Christina and they're all like super happy and they're like, oh, it's so sweet that Omar did this. And I'm like, yeah, sweet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so super sweet. Yeah. Uh, and so then I like start trying to think, what are my escape plans, you know? Because I really love boats, and I just want to hang out on the boat and stuff. And so, but I can't really tell Christina and Natasha that I'm really, really scared because I'm their coral reef expert who's so scared to go in the water. And that's uh, probably not what they want to hear. Um, and so then I just started trying to, you know, be cool and be like, hey, guys, uh, just so you know, I'm not, a I'm not a strong swimmer. They're like, oh, no, that's fine. I'm like, okay. So we get <laughs> more people learning on the boat. And I'm like, okay. And we're going out further and further in the water. And I hear Armour's voice. You can't make curriculum about coral reefs if you've never seen a coral reef. And I'm like, okay. So what am I going to do? And my mom's like, my mom's voice is like, stay on the boat. You know you should stay on the boat. <laughs> so there's this, you can't make a you can't make curriculum. And my mom, stay on the boat. And I'm like, oh. And so then we go out further, we go out further. And um, then I start getting really, really nervous. And I say, hey, guys, you uh, know I've never been snorkeling. And they're like, oh, it's pretty fun. It's just easy. Just, just you know stuff, you know, get in there, water, flute, you know, and I'm like, okay, um, okay, and so then they start kind of looking at me like, hmm, what, why is she making all of this, why is she making these excuses, so then I was like, you know, hey, this is a beautiful sunset, hey, let's take pictures, <laughs> selfie, selfie, who wants to do a selfie with me? Um, just so that I could look, you know, like, kind of like I'm cool and stuff. And um, so then I go, we get the water, we get closer and closer. We're in the middle of the water. I can't see any land. And then uh, our guide comes up to us, and we start mooring, because um, he says, uh, everybody, the water is really choppy, really, really choppy. Um, so if you can't swim well, you need to stay by the boat. And everybody's like, yeah, okay, no problem. And I'm like, 
Oh, oh God. And I was like, okay. So I nod my head like a lemming and I get in the line like everybody else, got my snorkel. And then they say, so then I say, sir, can I please get, because I noticed that no one else has on a life jacket. And so I go to there and I'm like, hey, sir, may I have a life jacket? And he looks at me like I said the most ridiculous thing that anybody's ever said to him. And so he yells to this other guy. And um, they come back with this life jacket that I'm not sure it was a life jacket. (laughs) It was just like in its previous life, it was like, a you know, it's one of those shirts that I was like a bottle. And, you know, I was just like, okay. So they put this life jacket on me. Then everybody who works starts looking at me because they're like, okay, this one is going to be trouble. And he tells me, oh, if you get in trouble, just raise your hand when you're in the water. And I'm like, uh, is this elementary school? What do you mean? Raise your hand when I'm drowning? That's what you mean? I'm going to be like, oh, uh, I'm drowning. Please help me. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. So what am I going to do? So then I um, get in the line and I see moment of truth. What should I do? I hear Omar's voice in my head saying, you can't do curriculum for the Red Sea if you've never been in the Red Sea. And I hear my mom saying, you better stay on that boat, girl. <laughs> and then I like see, and then the ladder, everybody's ch- climbing down. And so I get to the edge and I look at the water and it's, Looks like the jaws are down there or something. I don't know. I'm just so scared. But instead of taking the ladder, because I can't force myself to do that, I just jump in the water. And I can hear while I'm jumping all of the people on the boat going, oh! Because <laughs> they thought that I just, you know, slipped off the ladder. And then I submerged, and then I came back up. And I started thinking, and I started panicking because I could still hear my mom's voice in my head, like, get back on the boat, get back on the boat. And Amr's voice, like, oh, you, I don't know why I trusted you. And then um, something miraculously happened. Um, Natasha jumps in and she looks at me and she says, just look down. And it's amazing. But I just looked down, and all the voices stopped. It was just silence. And I saw the most beautiful sight that I've ever seen. I saw the colors. I saw little fish coming at each other. I just wanted to be immersed in this world. It was almost like a religious experience. And all of the fear that I had went away, and it was completely, completely worth it. Thank you. That was Latasha Wright. Latasha Wright received her Ph.D. from NYU in cell and molecular biology and went on to continue her scientific training at Johns Hopkins University and Weill Cornell Medical Center. In 2011, she joined the crew of the BioBus, a mobile science lab dedicated to bringing hands-on science and inspiration to students from all socioeconomic backgrounds. If you enjoyed today's story or are a fan of the podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon.com. If you sign up to donate $10 a month or more, we'll list your name in our show programs across the country. 
The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and me, Aaron Barker, with help from our many vendors and volunteers. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by me and Nissa Greenberg. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Red Room and Union Hall for hosting these shows and to all the scientists out there facing their fears. Thanks for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.